Colin, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be with you. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me today. Uh, so you are in the sunny, sometimes shady Topanga Canyon. Yeah, I'm surrounded by um, California oaks, which have been here for a long, long time, and um, Australian gums, gum trees, which have not been here for quite so long, and they're um, they're much more bully-like, you know, the Australian gums, because you know they're not native, so they really they tend to take over and push all the other trees out of the way, you know. Ah, oh, come on, I'm here, I'm here. So they're huge. They're huge trees, you know. I was going to say, I was going to ask, why is that? Why are they more aggressive? Is it just because they need more space or they just, uh, they live longer? I think, no, I think it's just because if, if you introduce a, a, a species, they, they are, they, they take over, you know, and it's like that with, with animals too. Like all the, there's a, if you introduce weird uh, animals of some kind or insects to a, to a continent, they tend to take over. Like in Australia, for example, they, they introduced um, cane toads many years ago to get rid of this dung beetle that was destroying the cane, and they ate they ate everything else except the dung beetle, and now you can't get rid of them, and they're they're just they're taking over the whole country. <laughs> That's incredible. I, and I might be getting this wrong, but maybe you can correct me or, or, or agree with me here. I heard, and it kind of blew my mind that Los Angeles, in particular. Uh, palm trees and especially a lot of other foliage there is not native to that area that they were planted there and brought there to make it more of a scenic place. And that, uh, you know, Los Angeles and Southern California basically on its own is really just a sort of a, a desert dry a land. Desert. Yeah. A desert, a desert dry land. Yes. Yeah. We, we, we should not be here. Yeah. It's really interesting. When I realized that most of what a Los Angeles is, was including the trees was brought in by people just to make it a Disneyland for adults. Uh, big, my, big set. It's yeah. a big, big set. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I was like, wow. Okay. I just learned something. That's interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, but you've been there for, you said 31 years. Yeah. yeah I, I a, really like, I, I really like it. I mean, I got, I got you, I didn't come here. It wasn't like a master plan or anything. I came here because I had a, re a few things were pointing away from Melbourne. I was uh, I was getting divorced and I was having trouble with a drink and I had a record deal that was based in Los Angeles. So I mm. thought this is where I'll come for a while. And I thought I would stay for maybe for a year or two. Yep. And and I did stay for a year or two and <laughs> then and then um, and then I just stayed because. Um, it just it suited me. It 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 was um, where I was, where I'd been was 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 kind of had a lot of dangers for me, you know. So mm. I I went I I I came here and I could wipe the slate clean and start again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine thirty one years ago it's a lot different too. I think there was still the the magic was in the air in Laurel Canyon, and I think the songwriter uh, scene then was probably a very very. Uh, you know, very fruitful, I think. Well, you you know, you still get a whiff of it when you drive up Laurel Canyon. Yep, yep, yep. That was a really cool documentary, actually. Yeah. I thought it was really unique. But uh, yeah, you know, LA's going through changes. I think the music industry, as you know, is going through a lot of changes. So LA's sort of growing with the times as it does. It, it doesn't stay one way. It figures out how to how to get to that next phase. So it's interesting, but you know, that's also why I like Nashville. I think Nashville is finally catching up with itself. It's trying to be parts of LA, parts of New York and do it in its own way. So uh, I'll be interested to see how things sort of grow here over the next five, 10 years. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've got a little I've got a little song that I'm working on. It's called Everyone's Moving to Nashville. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't yeah. but I don't think I will. Nah. That's nah. the that's the they're the first two lines. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you about that. Sometime. I was gonna say when I hear it. Uh you and I have a couple friends and acquaintances in common, probably more than I realize, but one right off the bat is Bruce Sugar. Uh right. is, is a good friend of mine. And then uh Ringo Starr, of course. So you and I actually worked on a song together and didn't know it. You did the Ringo song for World Peace Day called Now the Time Has Come. You kind of did some I'm not sure if a couple exactly of lines. What, did a couple yeah, of lines. Yeah. That's what it was. And then my artist, Casey McPherson, was also doing he did a couple of lines in the in the track. And I ended up in the studio for one of those days. But I it dawned on me today that that was I was like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, we've actually worked on something not knowing it. That was interesting. That happens that happens more than you more than you think. <laughs> it does. It does. Um so I want to ask you some uh some stuff about uh your writing habits. <laughs> I I think you are incredibly uh, you know you're you're incredibly just persistent as a songwriter and 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 high quality. There's very few people who do it at your level. Uh I would say uh I'm a huge fan of what you do and just wondering really what's your you know what keeps you going? What's that what keeps lighting that flame for you and keeps it fresh because you know you've been doing it for such a long time and it's never in my mind the quality has never dwindled i'm not really sure but i think that that persistent thing is an interesting observation just the persistence factor you know um you know i don't know what it is it's almost like uh um you try and you just try and make things i try and get things better you know or more essential try and say more with less all all those things but i don't know what it is that really you know uh maybe i still maybe i still have a point to prove i'm not really quite sure you know maybe it's it's i think it's a lot of things it's a combination of things it's like habit you know is one thing um you know if i do a record you know which i still do i'm you know in that old-fashioned way of making an album if i make a record at the end of that i think well that's that's probably it you know i'm, I'm done pretty much you know because i don't really have anything else to offer or to say and i go well i should probably just you know take the dog down the beach and just wander about there for the next few years you know sure but um and then what happens is that um you know ideas just start popping into your head you know, without me even really thinking about it. And I'll get an idea for something or it'll just be there and it'll just, it'll be, the idea will be persistent, you know? And so you just, I just follow the, I just follow them. And then all of a sudden over the next period of weeks or months, you know, I kind of build up all these little ideas on my iPhone and then I kind of listen to them and see what, see which ones are worth persevering with, you know? Right, which but I, worth pursuing. I yeah. still like it. You know, I still like that process. You know, I get, I get excited when, if I come up with something that I think is interesting or good and I play it in the studio, that's a great period because, you know, it's, it's again, it's that it's almost becoming a cliche now, but it's, it's something from nothing. You know, you're just going to bring in something that, that wasn't there before, you know? And, uh, mm. and, um, you know, it's, it's, and then, on a on a practical level it's really comes down to sometimes what you know my heritage or something my mother and father they just it's my job you know it's kind of what i do you know 
And uh, that, that's a really interesting point. I, I think there's something to be said about <clears throat> some people look at their job as something they they're like, oh, I have to go do that. And some people see it as well. This is something I must do. It's a service. It's almost like I have to. I have to give this thing. And why wouldn't I do it? Why wouldn't I give it my all and just do this thing? You know. Yeah, somewhere in between. I mean, I'm a, I'm a bit lazy. You know, I, it's not like <laughs> uh, it's a selfish thing, really. You know, for me, I, I, I mean, I do. It it does make me feel useful, especially when, especially when I go out on the road. You know, I always figure that's a that's a service industry where. You know, people go out and they have a, they, you're providing them with a, a good night out or, or even more so. At the very bottom line, that's, that's a good thing to do. But, but again, it's a selfish thing if I'm out on the road, um, because, especially because when I got dropped by major labels and stuff and I started playing live, uh, that was all I had really. I only had the live audience and they, and they kind of got it. You know, they understood what I was trying. You know, what, why I was still doing it. They understood, um, you know, what you're what you're going for. It's just kind of trying trying to make trying to make sense of of the day or trying to make sense of your place in the world. And then that's the connection because that's what you realize when you play shows that that's what everyone else is trying to do. You know, because nobody knows what the fuck's going on. You know, everyone's <laughs> everyone everyone's kind of going, oh, I don't really. And they, but they can't say that to, to very many people, you know. So they no. would come, they come and see you play, and they go, okay, give me what you got, and you, and you, and you connect. It's a, it's, it's a, a, a good form of human contact in that way. Yeah, it, it almost takes that validation, you know, for, <coughs> as much as it might seem like it's feeding the ego. I think, as a writer or musician, the, the the validation of finally getting out playing the stuff for a crowd, you know, if you're in your house for two years writing something, you've never played it for somebody. Yeah. Like you said, you don't, you don't know what the fuck is going on. You don't know if anybody's <clears throat> going to like it. You don't have any idea, especially if you get dropped by a label, you're thinking, oh fuck, they don't get it. Nobody's going to get it. <clears throat> you yeah. get out there and you stand in front of some fans and they, they totally get it right off the bat. And you're like, this is why I do this. And this is what keeps me going. Um, but it is weird without that live interaction. I think it's really difficult. Um, you know, I, certain artists that don't tour at all. I've always wondered how they, how they pull that off. You know, well, it's, it's not it's not for everyone. You know, playing live, yeah. but um, you know, there are people who just really love writing songs and being in the studio, and then yep. they put them out there, and they have no interest in playing live. And I can understand, yep. I can understand that. You know, um, but um, in my case, and I think in a lot of other people's cases, um, it's just it's something that I that I can do. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not bad at it. Do you know what I mean? Not at all. So, <laughs> yeah. so you kind of, so in that sense, you just play to your strengths, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, <coughs> you certainly, you certainly don't suck. So I think, um, I was going to say, you know, what did you, um, what did you do when you were younger that got you into songwriting? I'm sure you've heard this question a million times, but I'm always really interested to hear what was that tipping point to say, you know, I think this is what I'm going to do for a living as opposed to maybe I'll go do something else and be a woodworker or something. When was it the, the tipping point? I never had a conscious thought about, about doing it for a living. I never thought, Oh, I'm going to do this for a living. I, I, I think I got involved with music so that I could avoid the workforce. You know, I could, av I could avoid joining the, to me, what was the straight world, you know, of guys in suits and ties and going to work at jobs that they didn't really like. I just, I, I, I couldn't stand that idea, and um, but 
but that was later on. I, in, when I was about thirteen or fourteen, um, you know, I became a, I became mesmer, mesmerized by um, by music, um, mainly the Beatles, but also I loved all those bands like the Kinks and the Who and all all those other bands, and then my my brother turned me on to black music and, you know, and listening to things like even, you know, Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs was kind of like, mm. you know, very mysterious and, and kind of exotic, you know, sounding, you know. And, um, yeah. and, and I just started to write little tunes and I was already playing out in little folk clubs when I was from, from when I was 14 years old, I was, I was playing out in, cl- in, in clubs and stuff like that. So, I would play. Uh, I would play songs. I would play folk songs. I'd play, you know, whatever, you know, Beatles songs, and and um, and then I would try and write my own songs. I can't remember any of them, but I remember people. To- people have told me since that I w- that I was in fact playing my own songs then, but I can't really remember uh, remember them. But I know that that's where that's where it started. Just kind of trying to write my own tunes, you know. That's so cool. I, I have similar experience. I wrote a bunch of songs in my 12, 13, 14, 15, and I know I probably wrote a couple dozen. I can't remember them at all. And I think no. there were, at some point there were some recordings or cassette tapes of them somewhere, but that's long gone. Yeah. Lost somewhere. It's, yeah. Probably not. It's kind of. Probably not such a bad thing, you know, to forget those early ones, you know. But um, that was, was interesting about uh, Lennon and McCartney, you know, who got together when they were young and they, they were they wrote them together. I think they, I think they can remember a lot of their early ones, you know, because they, they say there were hundreds and I think there's some evidence of that. I think they might have, you know, recorded some of them. That's the key is, is, is putting them, putting them down in some way, shape or form. You know, when I was younger, I used to remember, I used to remember uh, the good ideas that I had, but um, those days are long gone. I have to, I have to put it down straight away. Otherwise it's gone. Yeah, I feel like there's a there's a memory there's a memory space problem. <clears throat> it's like the older you get, there's the more stuff up there, and you, you only got so much space you can fill with with your memory. <laughs> it's yeah. running out of hard drive. Um, so, do you remember when you first did your like first proper recording? When you actually got into a studio and you were like, "Okay, I'm going to go do this," whether with a band or solo recording. Oh well, there was a few. I had a few a few little moments where um, where I recorded, but really the the first thing that I did. The first thing that we did was with with the men at work. With, was with the men at work band when we went in to record. Uh, the first time we went, we went into a studio to record uh, down under, and uh, which was the which was originally the B side of a, of a, of another song, and we went in there with guys who were they were um, they were really tech guy. They were really technicians more than anything else, and and they were kind of inventors or they, they were they knew about m- music and so forth and sound but they weren't really sound engineers so we went into the studio with them and we ended up recording a couple of songs which didn't sound very good really um but we made like 500 copies of that first single um but the first time that we went in the studio where i thought oh this is what it's supposed to be was when we recorded who can it be now with uh, peter mckeon who was the producer of the band and he knew what he was doing and um you know knew how to mic things up and all of a sudden we're in the studio and things sounded good so that was a that was my first memory of of, of doing something which i thought oh this is really exciting you know that's so cool you said that the 
the Down Under was a B-side of another song and you just sort of transformed it into something else? That's pretty wild. Yeah, well, it was like a hippie song when, when we first used to play it because we were a bit of a, we were kind of like, we had arrangements to songs and stuff like that, but we often, we are, you know, the, our songs were too long. You know, they were oh. waffly and kind of we'd be on stage and, uh, you know, there was a little bit of, you know, the dead effect, you know, of what yeah. we were, you know, because we, we were a five-piece band, and of course, when you have five people in a band, you have to uh, usually, if you're if you're attempting to have some kind of musical democracy, uh, everyone's ideas have to be incorporated, no matter how crap they are, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and I include myself in that. Uh, but uh, so, when we got into the studio, um, the, the 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 producer was great because he'd say. You know, you'd have this six or seven minute song, which Who Can It Be Now was and Down Under was. And, and uh, you know, the first thing he said about Who Can It Be Now was he goes, okay, move that saxophone hook that first used to appear in the song halfway through it, which is like stupid. You know, he goes, well, the first yeah. thing we've got to do is move that saxophone hook up the front of the song. And we go, oh, fucking brilliant. Let's do that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. so, um, so, and all of a sudden you have a three and a half minute pop song from, from this kind of meandering kind of pub rock song that used people used to just get drunk to on a Thursday night, you know. I know. So that's so he he whipped the songs into shape and uh, really made a made a made a pop album from 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 the songs we had. I mean, the songs were pretty set; they were they were all there. It was just a matter of getting rid of stuff and and and, and accentuating uh, the essential elements of them, you know. I feel a lot of times that's the best part about working with, with producers that get what you're trying to do, even though you might not, they hear the meat and potatoes of the song and they yeah. go, that's a great song. Let's now let's move the fat and let's rearrange, yeah. remove the fat and your brain explodes because you're so used to doing it one way yeah. or 50 ways that when they finally come in as a third party, yeah. your brain goes, why didn't we think of this? We could yeah. have done this, and, yeah. but you can't. Well, usually, the, usually <laughs> it's because of the fact that there are competing elements within the band. You know, or right. or just like you say, there's there's too much stuff in there. Um, yep. And so that's and that's difficult to negotiate with other members of the band because you just end up kind of, you know, it's a competition really. You know, and and I I was all I was always of a mind that these were in fact simple pop songs. You know, um, and then when the, when he came in and started working on the songs, I thought, oh great, you know, and so now I don't have to do that. I don't have to. I don't have to fight for this. You know, someone else is someone else is doing that. Someone else in a position of power. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's also you know nobody ever wants to be the bad guy in their band, but there's always one. And so it's nice to have the outside party come in and do the dirty work sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, do the dirty deeds. Um, so when you finally made those recordings, was there was there a, sort of a moment when you realized it was sort of connecting with a new audience? Was there a label involved at that point, or did you guys start playing shows and start sort of or continue building a grassroots audience, or was it, or is it something where somebody jumped in right away and started to help? Um, yeah, a lot of questions there, Reggie. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I'm loading them up. <laughs> um, now we had we had a very strong live following before we made a, before we made any records. So we were we would attract maybe you know up to like a thousand people would come and see us on a on a Thursday Friday night wherever we were playing before we had a record deal. So the first record deal we had was just for a single. For who can it be now? And then 
that um, that was with CBS Records, which became Sony. And then, um, so that started to do really well. They released that and it went to number two. And um, so then we, um, then they said, oh, well, you better make a record. So we uh, we made the the uh, the first um, the Men at Work album, a business as usual. But it was it was all it, it was all as far as we were concerned, this was all part of our plan. You know, we we had we we always were very ambitious and we were very aspirational. We didn't want to just have success in Australia. We wanted to be an international band. We wanted to be successful overseas, and so. It just seemed very natural for us that this was happening, you know, even although it was pretty exciting and phenomenal in a way. But um, it was really just um, when we were, when we toured Australia in 1981, before we left to go overseas, when our album had just been released, <clears throat> um, it's like that moment when you're uh, in a, a period of ascension. It's like if you're taken off in an airplane, the most exciting part is when you're taken off. Like before you actually, you know, hit the air is always the most exciting part in, in what you do. And that's that's what that was. So we, we kind of knew what was going to happen. But it was just this kind of um, thing that was happening to us. And you felt like you were in control of it, but you weren't really. Or you, you felt that there were other factors. It was just like it was our moment. It was, it was nothing. There was nothing that anyone could really do to stop this this was this was this was this was already the train had already left the station you know yeah once you're in flight i love the airplane analogy i actually think that's perfect because it's like once you exciting yeah. parts at the beginning and once you take yeah. flight well it's like Here well we are. who knows there's a million things yeah. that can go wrong yeah. or we go could, right yes. yeah we could <laughs> nosedive yeah does everybody have their parachutes on just in case yeah yeah. I was talking to Neil Finn at one point and he he has a very different story, but it was funny how his was, you know, he's, his older brother said, join my band. Yeah, I'm, and he's like, oh, okay, I guess I will. I remember, um, <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing, seeing those shows, um, the first shows that they did because I was a big fan of split ends. And, um, this is an right, interesting man. thing too, where, um, you'd go and see split ends and they were fantastic, uh, without, without Neil. And then when Neil came in, all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is a great, these are great pop songs. It brought in this kind of real um, incredible, there was, still the, there was still the a meandering aspect to it. There was still un, an unpredictable aspect to it, but, but there was this really, really amazing um, uh, melodic structure and, 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 um, and, uh, the songs were just immediate, you know. The, the songs that what he brought to the band was a lot more immediate than the um, than what they were doing before. Uh, you know, it was a, a bit more. There's a lot more le uh, left of center in terms of the all the song arrangements and stuff before Neil arrived. You know, but I remember seeing I remember seeing him when he was looked like he was a you know just at school. I think he probably was at school, <laughs> but um, yeah. but it was a it was a great a great addition to the band you know not that they weren't great before but they were even greater when he joined yeah no it just sounds like a really cool time in that part of the world anyway it's like you know what you what you guys were doing and then you look at uh like you said split. Oh, we used to we used to open up for them we used to open up for split ends i mean that's what i'm saying it's just so cool i mean you guys had this experimental side to you and then split ends was this almost postmodern progressive rock band but not really yeah it's like yeah. you know it's like really really cool and then uh, you know bands like marillion 
kind of came out of the idea of them being Split Ends fans, right? You know, it's like they took what Split Ends was doing and picked up that torch in the 80s. And I don't know, it's such a really cool time. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's cool. You were, you were there and got to experience that. Yeah. And you were, you're, you are, you are those people. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty amazing. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I have a million questions as you can tell, but I'm, I'll try and taper them down to something reasonable. Uh, <laughs> so when you guys had your first, uh, you said you went to number two on the charts, but when you had your first international success around what time was that when you started breaking in other territories? I was, it was pretty soon after that. I mean, who can it be now? Um, went to number one in the US. And um, that was the first single that, that broke in most parts of the world. And, um, and there was a, a, a CBS music convention. I think, it was in, I think it was in Miami or somewhere. Or it might have been either Miami or Puerto Rico. or I'm not quite sure where it was, but there was definitely an international um, CBS convention. And they all just had... Uh, the the guys in Australia brought this single and it just said who can it be now on it, it didn't even have the name of the band <laughs> and they gave and they gave people this this single and and played played the video on the on this big screen and it was just really it, it looked really good and sounded really good and all these different uh, CBS affiliate labels um, different territories got excited and uh, you know we had hits in 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 Switzerland and Israel and. Italy and Spain and Brazil and everywhere, all across the world, it started to break around the same time. And the United States was really the last country to pick up on the band. It was actually, uh, the album was rejected twice at A&R because they didn't think there was any, any hits on it. But <laughs> it, it, eventually, it, it, you know, that, the, that decision to not release was over, overridden by the, by the boss, a guy called Dick Asher, who, um, who, uh, released the album. And, um, and it had it had already been getting such uh, an, an amount, a huge amount of underground radio play that it was almost like once it hit here, it was just kind of went and, and went and went kind of nuts and, and you know coupled with with the MTV thing, it was it was unstoppable at that point, you know. Yeah, there was already a groundswell, so it wasn't, it wasn't much of it. Just popped. It's uh, those are my favorite stories when you hear that the A and R people or label executives pass on a song, say I don't hear a single. Almost every time you hear that story, and the song ends up getting pushed through by somebody else anyway, ends up being that song that is uh, career identifying. Yeah, um, yeah, and then and then everybody says, oh, I was with, I was there right at the start. I said, yeah. and I and I can go, no, you weren't. <laughs> yeah, I, rem- yeah. I remember. Yeah. Yeah, there they are on the front of Billboard. The man behind Men yeah. at Work. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I don't care. I, 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 yeah. It's just all funny to me now because, you know, I, I very very early on, I mean, I loved, I loved coming to the United States and going to those, going to the big black rock in New York at, to, see, to Sony Music, which became Sony Music. But, um, and going up to those offices and, and, and meeting all those guys, all those promotions guys and the A&R guys, because I just realized pretty much really, they were just so full of themselves, you know, and, and, but they were entertaining at the same time, you know, and the lawyers were entertaining and everyone, it was just a huge thing to me. And I just, I just used to marvel at their, their ability to, um, to, uh, to be so amazed by themselves, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you know, whether, and whether imagined or not, 
You know, right. they they believed they believed everything about that they told themselves. You know, yeah, they Very, were drinking, yeah, drinking the Kool Aid, going oh. all the way in. <laughs> yeah, the egos, especially then, were really big. You know, with, with those types of people, especially lawyers and A and R's, it was like, yeah, you know, they just ask them; they're the best in the business. They can yeah. do it all. I remember, uh, I remember going into uh, to Walter Yetnikoff's office, who you ran sorry for many years and. And uh, I don't think he particularly liked our band much. And um, and uh, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, you know, and I went up to his office. He goes, how you doing, Carl? Come on, you, get, you want a vodka? And I go, oh, no, even for me, that's a bit early, you know. And so <laughs> and so he just talked at me for about half an hour. And I didn't, I didn't really get a word in. And then eventually I said something which made him laugh. And he goes, ha, he goes, that's funny. He goes, you're a funny guy. He goes, you know what, Carl, I like you. You know why I like you? And I go, no. And he goes, because you're not an asshole. <laughs> and I thought, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> yeah. You're like thinking, you're the one that's been talking to me for half an hour. You <laughs> might you might pick up on a pretty <laughs> decent guy if you'd listen for a second. Yeah. But he was hmm. very he was very entertaining though. He was a smart yeah. guy. And uh, I don't I don't know whether he was particularly um great for for um for music, you know, but he was certainly uh he was certainly an interesting guy to have a conversation with. Yeah, there's a lot of people in the music business um, <clears throat> that I've come across that could be excellent car salesmen, uh, you know, or or insurance salesmen, you know, uh, or saleswomen for that matter. They're just, you know, they they can talk anybody in circles in any business. Doesn't matter. Just put them in the room. They'll just talk you to death. <laughs> uh, they don't have to know anything about music. Um, actually, it leads to my next question. So, is there anybody? outside of you know your band members but it was really a guiding force for your career personally whether it's the band or you that you know it was integral having around whether it was an A&R type person or a manager somebody that if they weren't around you can't really imagine your career without uh not really we, we there was six of us and we five musicians and one manager um the manager was a guy called Russell who was my friend uh, from university and it was really just the six of us, you know, for a long time. And we, we kind of, you know, we didn't really do things the established way in, in the way that no, bands normally did things. And so I think we suffered quite a lot of resentment, especially when we became very, very successful. People thought, well, you know, why should that happen to them? You know, we're, we're much better or we've been working longer or we're much more talented. How come, how come they got to be so, so successful? You know, so I always felt that we kind of, you know, pretty much blazed the trail um, alone. You know, we didn't really have anybody to tell us, oh, you should do it this way or you should do it that way. And I had a couple of people tell me things, give me advice that I never paid attention to that I should have, you know. But I think that that's what happens when you're young. You know, you you think you know everything and uh, it turns out that you know nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and as part of that's kind of, good in a way because you just you just go okay this is the way i'm going you know and and mm. um and it either works or it doesn't you know and sometimes if you listen to everyone's advice or people have always got opinions and advice you can end up more confused than anything sometimes i think you know if you can just you know machete your way through your own wee path and and make it make it happen sometimes you're you're better off you know but we had a like we had like a a horrible, horrible record deal. I mean, it was just, 
it was almost criminal. I think you know if I if I think about it now, it was just it was we got and we we became very successful. We sold not, an awful lot of records, but it was a horrible, horrible deal. I think I think like our first deal was like four percent or something. You know what? Yeah, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, that's pretty bad, especially that's, when you're talking physical product. That's right. That's yeah. right. Wow. So, um, so yeah, that was. Um, we didn't. Um, that was a that was a, a big mistake. We, we 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 should have had much much. We should have had. Uh, I was going to say better legal advice. No, we should have had legal advice. <laughs> <laughs> Just any legal advice. Yeah. So, were you guys? Do you remember if you did like a multi-album deal on that same deal? Or was that like it was like a multiple? Yeah, we had. Yeah, it was multi. Yeah, it was multi. Yeah, we had we had a deal. But of course, once we became very successful, we we renegotiated. Yeah, uh, with uh, uh, Grubin and Dusky and Schindler in New York, and um, there, there the lawyers. <laughs> yeah, and but 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 then I got invited out to um, to uh, Grubin's place on in the Hamptons uh, one day, and you know, and I see all the all the record executives that they were supposed to be getting us a better deal on, and and playing volleyball, and them going, okay, this next point's for two points on Carlos' new record. You're okay with that, aren't you, Carl? <laughs> and then we just go, okay, sit down, relax, have a few laughs. And I'm going, ah, oh, this is this is bizarre. Yeah, there's nothing funny about talking about my money over a point <laughs> yeah, in a volleyball right. game. Yeah, in, in a volleyball game, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it's, I don't know. I think times have definitely changed. I mean, look at the, the, the deal structures now are, 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 I mean, similar in some ways, but very different, but now the 360 model is how they completely uh, survive, right? You know, there's just not yeah. a whole lot in streaming. So without touring and merchandise and social media and all these other things, the, 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 the majors wouldn't have survived. They were basically on their deathbed until, yeah. until about 2012 when Spotify really started to take hold and, and yeah. figure it out. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting time to be an artist or a man. I'm still managing an artist that's signed to a major now. And it's very interesting to just see how things are done as opposed to when I first got in the business almost 20 years ago, which is still not that long ago, but it's long enough for me to remember when there was no streaming services, everything was radio, everything was touring driven. If you didn't go out and build an audience in the van or the bus, yeah. you weren't building an audience. It wasn't happening. Yeah. Um, and just to see now how you can put out a song on TikTok and be a star, literally 24 hours later, have a record deal that just says, we want half of everything you make for the next, you know, four years, five years. It's pretty wild. It can just yeah. happen like that now. Well, it's interesting because I'm only, I, I come from that old, the, the old, uh, the old model, uh, when there was physical product and so forth. But, um, you know, Down Under is becoming a hit again uh, with um, uh, with this young guy called out of Australia. His name's Lude, and he did a he did a, a an electronic version of Down Under, and um, he asked me if I'd give him a new vocal, so I sent him a new vocal. So um, he's using my vocal, and and he's put this other track to it, and uh, it, it it was exactly as you say. It's been a, a TikTok hit. Now it's I think number one in New Zealand and top ten in Australia, and and uh, in England, and that's exactly what happened. And uh, I would not have predicted that forty yeah. years, forty years on, that Down Under would be a hit once again. Uh, that's so cool. I mean, but you know, good songs live on. It's really hard to get rid of them. <laughs> it's a, it's hard to shake them off your back. Um, so, what are you up to now? I mean, I know that you're still doing the thing, and you got some tour dates coming up. Finally, after the past couple of years, have been a little bit of uh, I have uh, w- um, w- witness protection program. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have a I have a new album coming called Now and the Evermore. Uh, it comes out March eighteenth, and 
I'm I'm out on tour in support of that. You know, I just keep I keep uh, I keep making records and I keep saying that this one's the best one, but this this one really is the best one. Mm. And uh, so I just keep going. I just keep keep uh, keep trying to trying to get it better all the time. And uh, I'll do it as long as I can. You know, for sure. Who'd you do this record with? I did it myself. I did it right here in my studio, and oh. I did it with um, my you know small kind of small group of musicians that I work with. Um, Greg Bissonette played most of the drums, and uh, God, he's a beast. Jimmy he's Earl and a couple of couple of bass players, and um, wow. and I, I I have a band here that I work with as well. But you know, just a small a small different group of musicians depending on what was wanted and then i i recorded some strings um in uh, in nashville at compass because i'm signed to compass records which is a little label independent label out of nashville so cool. so they um recorded the strings over there so it's um i really love this record so it comes out march 18 we'll we'll see what we'll see what happens and i'll be kind of out in support of that probably for the next couple of years yeah, you know, I can't wait to listen to it. I'm definitely coming to one of the two nights at City Winery at uh, in Nashville. Right. It's only a five-minute drive for me, so I'm definitely Excellent. planning on being there. All yeah, right. Yeah. Um, well, Colin, thank you so much for taking the time. And, My pleasure. And dropping some wisdom. And um, I'll be sure to connect with you uh, when you get to Nashville, and we'll, we'll get up and say hey in okay. person. Okay, great. Come and say hello. I will. I will indeed. Thanks so much for your time, man. My pleasure. See you. Take care. Bye. Bye.